Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. On Friday of last week, I got to sit down with Cami Crawford. Well, we sat down over a Zoom call, but you know staying home when we can. And Cami and I talked for over three hours. She is incredible. You probably know her from being the co-host of MTV's Catfish, and she also happened to be Miss Teen USA in 2010. But this week, we went a little deeper than careers. We talked about Cami's experience being a black woman in America right now, how she's feeling, the marches for Black Lives Matter across the country, what defunding the police actually means in practical terms, and so much more. She shared some disgusting, I mean, honestly insane stories about Donald Trump from when she participated in the Miss Teen USA competition, and they need to come to light. We also talked about why there's nothing wrong with talking about race and so much more. And of course, as we normally do, we just dove right in talking about how she's doing. And eventually we circled back around to learning about how she came to be the incredible woman that she is. Enjoy today's episode, guys. Thanks for being here. You know, we are recording this on Brianna Taylor's what should be her 27th birthday. I'm 27. Something about reading that just like sent me over the edge and I just started bawling and I couldn't stop and I cried until I went to sleep and I I, I could not like regain control. It's just, it's really, it's really crazy. Just everything that's been happening. But aside from that, I'm good. I think <laughs> for now, <laughs> for now, we'll see. Every day is different. Are, it's like a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I mean, the world feels like a roller coaster right now. Mm-hmm. And and I think about it. I know how intense the the reactions are that I feel in my own empathy, in my own body, in my own emotions, and I'm still having a proximal experience mm-hmm. to the experience of your community. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my best friend about this on Wednesday, and she was telling me how things are going in Detroit right now. And, and I, I just said that every single time I have that moment of like, I'm so tired or I'm so sad. I just think, how, how is she feeling? How are the women in my life that don't look like me, the women in my life that look like you, Mm -hmm. how must you be feeling? Because I am, I am touching something that I, feel and feel for, but still is not wholly mine. And I, I wonder how are you, because I'm sure there are people listening who feel that. How are Mm -hmm. you taking care of yourself right now? What is the support that you need to lighten that load that is on your shoulders and your heart right now? I think I'm still trying to figure that out. And I appreciate you for even saying that in the first place, like saying that it's not an experience that ho- that's wholly yours because this is an experience that the black community faces mm-hmm. every day. Like this is a, mm-hmm. a weight that we carry on a regular daily basis. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this, this moment in time, while it's of course horrible and tragic and, you know, emotionally traumatic, all of those things are happening at once. It's also not new for us. And that's the worst part about it. So I, I don't think that throughout, you know, recent history and all of the other murders of black people by police officers that we've seen over the course of, you know, the last few years, Mm. the last one that hit me the way that this one is hitting me was Trayvon Martin. And that was like the, the first kind of catalyst for black lives matter, I think. And that was the first time that I actually like broke down about it. All the other ones after that, to be completely honest, it's like you become desensitized and you almost question like, am I crazy? Like, is something wrong with me? Like, why do I not feel the same way I felt then about all of these other situations? And it's because it happens all the time. Trayvon Martin wasn't the first black boy to be murdered for no reason. And you know, all of these other murders that have happened by police or by, you know, people who are racist, it's not the first time. This has been happening since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. And now being in this space where there's so much more community, it actually makes me feel a little bit better. It feels like, I I keep saying that something about this time just feels different to me and I don't know what it is. I I think it's just everyone banding together and it just, it feels different. So I, I don't know, crying helps. Um, I also got a new like stationary bike in my apartment and I've just been like trying to ride it out and, you know, tap it back as much as I can try to get out the, that energy. And then, you know, my boyfriend who is a black man who has been out protesting three days in a row, he went, um, until curfew. And even went back out to like pass out waters to protesters and stuff like that. He's been a big inspiration for me for, you know, just like 
keeping it going. Like even last night when I was breaking down, he was like, you have to stay strong. Like we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. We have to keep going. So that's my long winded way of saying I do not have a self care routine at this time. (laughs) I'm still trying to kind of like figure things out as it goes along. But I think that using my platform to speak and just like speak out the emotions has been really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think there is such profundity in allowing people into our vulnerability when we're going mm-hmm. through something. And I, I've been so, I'm like sitting here on the phone, like, you know, scrolling and then I'm watching your stories and I'm like, you know, and I'm like, no one's listening to me to cheer through the phone, but okay. It's energetically. I'm like, maybe it works. Um, you, oh, you have like, you. you've, you've really been talking about this a lot on Instagram. You, you said that you've been having a lot of conversations with your mom and with your friends and you've been really open about this on your stories. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering what does that kind of both like intergenerational and intragenerational conversation look like right now? I, I find that I'm having so many really illuminating conversations. I know with my parents, you know, uh-huh. my dad is like this sweet 72 year old man from Canada. Who's like sending me political no. memes on Instagram every day. And my dad said to me, he said, you know, your mom and I, like we marched in the sixties and we marched against Vietnam and I've been so yeah. disillusioned. And I thought like when I was young, like you, I used to think it mattered. And I'm only realizing now that I'm getting inspired by my daughter to have more uncomfortable mm. conversations with my friends again. I I realized that I'd kind of lost that. I'd lost my my faith in in our ability to change anything. Yeah. And again, having a proximal experience to what so many Americans have every day, you know to your point about your boyfriend and so many people in our communities, like everyone's out protesting. We're, we are like the young protest political activist, you know, generation in comparison. What, what happens across the generational line for you in those conversations that you're having with your mom? Yeah. So, I mean, I can completely relate to that because on my mom's side of the family, I'm first generation American. Mm-hmm. On my dad's side of the family, my dad grew up in Detroit, Michigan, but his mom grew up in West Virginia. And I can only imagine what that's like. She she now passed. But, um, you know, from I have completely different points of view. My mom was born and raised in Jamaica on an island with people who looked like her. But also mm-hmm. our family is very multiracial. I have, you know, cousins that are Chinese. I have cousins that are German with blonde hair and blue eyes. I have, you know, it's all over the place. And she was always raised to love everyone. Everyone was the same. And she didn't experience racism until she moved to America when she was a teenager. And Mm -hmm. my grandmother, you know, she... So my great-grandfather is Indian and Cuban, but my great-grandmother is German and Irish. So, you know, coming from that kind of biracial background, but not being black or looking black, when my grandmother moved to the States, she was able to pass for white. And 
she she didn't even know what racism was when she moved here. She she told me that she was actually at work one day and someone was like, yeah, so-and-so is a racist. They're prejudiced. And my grandma was like, are they going to be okay? What is What do they have? Like, she thought that it was like a, a disease, which it is, but she thought that it was like some type of illness that they were going to go to the hospital for or something. So, you know, having that side versus my dad being a 6'4", dark-skinned Black man from Detroit mm-hmm. who had a completely different experience, who has had to fight his way up the corporate ladder for positions that he should have probably been CEO of years ago, but that mm. position always was given to someone who was white over him, even if he had the better qualifications and the better resume. Those different opinions, I think, are the reason why I'm able to formulate more of like a worldview of just life and race and colorism and racism and just researching, like looking into these things because my mom is way more vocal about her childhood and growing up and things like that than my dad is probably because some traumatic stuff happened that he can't just can't like even think about to talk about. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like generational pain and perspective is super eye-opening for me. I mean, I just got off the phone with my grandmother before I got on this call and she was saying that when she moved to America she was like what I'm seeing now by police and racists in this country is the same thing that I heard them say to me because they thought that I was white when I moved here in the first place in the 70s like she she was able to hear all of what everybody was saying from both sides because mm. she passed for white think about that having two black children because my grand my grandfather is a black Jamaican man, having two black children moving to a new country and hearing the way that racist people think and feel about black people. And you know that you're trying to bring your children to this country. To Ohio, mm. by the way, that's where she moved from Jamaica. Nobody knows why. <sighs> like everybody else moved to like Miami or New York or somewhere fun. My grandmother moved to Cleveland, Ohio. And <laughs> so I, I can only imagine for her, you know, the fear of that, like you go from a place that's so open and so, you know, loving, like the, the phrase, the, the motto of Jamaica is out of every one people, which means everyone is welcome. Everyone is the same. Mm. Everyone is loved, every, you know, and while we do have our own issues with colors and things like that in other countries, white supremacy is not generally one of them. So those are kind of the conversations that we're having. And, you know, amongst my friends, it's more just like pain and trying to figure out when is this going to be enough? Like, when are we going to march enough? When are we going to protest enough? When are we going to die enough? Like what is going to be the final nail in the coffin that it's going to be like, okay, now we're ready to create change. So Mm. But I think both sides are are ready to fight, and they're like they're they're down for the cause. Like we were back in civil rights, and I think that that is the most beautiful thing about that. Mm. Yeah, I really I agree. I think we're seeing something be so collectively obvious, which always should have been obvious. You know, like it's been time, but it's finally time. I hope. 
And I really appreciate, you know, what you said about how many more, because I think it's important for anybody listening to this, who this conversation might be newer for, that if you're sitting at home and and you're wondering really what that means, like sit with the reality as a listener that there have been generations of people who have carried this burden, who have marched Mm -hmm. For simple things like justice and a recognition of dignity and that it's tiring. We hear right. these conversations, especially now, I think, you know, Time's Up and the Me Too movement have really brought the crux of women's labor into a new conversation. And we're acknowledging a mm-hmm. lot of unpaid labor for women. You know, that that's something you and I can sit down and and like wrap on another time is like oh, as yeah. we go through as women in these industries. Yeah. The, that's the thing that you and I get to share. And then mm-hmm. I only proximally as a woman understand your experience in the industry as a woman of color. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, especially because I know a lot of women listen to this podcast, if if you haven't been close to the race conversation as a listener, but you understand these conversations about women's experiences and about the unpaid labor that women do and about the emotional toll and the exhaustion that unpaid labor causes for women. I would just encourage you to, as we go through this conversation and as you think about this conversation for the next couple of days, think about what the unpaid labor of civil demonstration, what the actual toll, the work that that requires and has required in the leadership of so many communities of color and how often the people who look like me follow your community too slowly in, in those spaces, you know, I I just think it's an important acknowledgement as we're talking about all of this. And I, I, I've had the privilege of sitting on some very incredible zoom calls all week with some really incredible activists and I got to sit in on a call uh, with about 250 people a few days ago, and we spoke to George Floyd's attorney. And And what amazed me about his speaking on justice and on what happened to George Floyd was that he took a moment and asked everyone on the call to lift Breonna Taylor up. And he said, and I wrote it down, he said, sisters don't get the same reverence that we give to brothers when they get executed by the police. He said, I just got chills. Yeah. And he said, please do not let her be forgotten. And then I thought about the famous Malcolm X quote. And Malcolm X said, the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. Is the black woman. Mm-hmm. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. Mm-hmm. And you are, you are nodding and you clearly are not of the generation of Malcolm X. So when we think about why that was true in the civil rights marches, our parents protested in, and we think about why that still feels true when we're out marching in the streets for George Floyd and for Breonna Taylor. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that the intersectional reality for black women is so, so much more oppressed and filled with so much more emotional labor? It's, it's a thing I really want people who are listening to this conversation to understand and think about. Yeah. I, I think that it's, 
a multitude of things. And I think that women who are listening, and I I know you can relate, I, every woman can relate on this level that even though as women, we are, you know, emotional beings, we are always seen as like the pillar of strength. We are mm-hmm. always seen as, you know, the ones who just know, we just have the instincts, we're born with it. Like that, that is the overall, you know, generalization about women. We, we have it together. We know what we're doing. And then to add being black on top of that, I think that there is a, I'm sure there's a much deeper understanding of this, but the first thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, look at slavery. The reason why black slaves were chosen is because they were seen as strong the strongest, they could withstand it, they could be out in the heat, they could take it, they could take the pain, they could take, we were seen as less than, we were seen as worker animals. Like that was the overall view of black people at that time. And by probably some people still to this day. So when you add that aspect of, you can take it, you'll be fine. Like nobody's worried about you, pick it back up, get back to work, do what you got to do on top of being a woman who you have it together. You already know what to do. You have the instincts. You, you've got this, like, keep it going. Mm. There is a certain level of exhaustion that you reach as a black woman for always being told that you have to be strong because you don't have a choice because the world is not going to give you any passes because you are black at the end of the day. Mm. On top of the fact that, you know, being a woman you're just expected to get up, go do it. What do you mean you're sick? You can't be sick. You've got kids to take care of. You can't mm-hmm. miss work. Like if you miss work, then the guy who works 10 times less than you is going to get your position. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a crossover there that just becomes more apparent as, as you live the experience of being a black woman. And mm. It is tiring. I can't lie. There, there. I do want to acknowledge that there is so much joy and culture and beauty and being mm. a black person, but there is there is a burden that mm. we are born with. That it's not just stories that are passed down from our parents. It's things that we've experienced and lived. Mm-hmm. It's things that I've experienced and lived, and I even acknowledge my privilege as a light skinned black woman. There are things that my darker skinned sisters will face that I probably won't. And there are situations that I'll be put in that maybe they won't be put in. And it's, there's, there's so many different layers, but my goal is that all of us are able to be heard because at the end of the day, black is black and to a racist person, being black is being black to a misogynistic man. Being a woman is being a woman. Like mm. it, it just is what it is. Mm. It feels like a good time again. I don't normally um, pause conversation to address the listeners so often, but the conversation I think that we're having warrants a lot of just like asterisk points for introspection. You know, everyone who's listening to this, one of the things that Cammie's highlighting here, this assumption that you could take the pain, you could take the heat, that attitude from slavery, which is a a 400-year-old stain on 
where we live, that attitude has perpetuated into modern culture in a way that if you listening at home are not aware of, I'd like to ask you um, if you're thinking about how you can show up for your neighbors and your community and for people of color right now, what I'd like you to do after this conversation is get online and do a little bit of research. I want you to understand the pay gap that women of color face, which is that they make 64 cents on average on the dollar that a white man makes. I want you all to understand the the maternal mortality rate that black women face, which means that they die four times as often in childbirth than their white counterparts. I want you to understand that there are studies that have been published by some of the most incredible medical institutions in America that highlight that doctors and medical professionals genuinely believe that black people feel less pain than white people in emergency rooms, hospitals, surgeries, et cetera. These are, these are the generational shadows of what we consider very often in society because it makes us more comfortable, what we consider to be the past. The past is not in the past and it's not okay. And the systems will continue to perpetuate that kind of disparate oppression unless we, the people who care enough to do something about it, learn about the disparity in the first place and then actually stand up and do something about it. So you guys have homework this week, but I know who our listeners are and I know you'll actually do it. I want to stand up and literally clap for you because all of that was everything because that is a huge part of what I think that people do not recognize. Like I was looking at some crazy conservative lunatic, no offense to anybody who considers themselves to be conservative, but this person is actually crazy. And what's even crazier is she happened to be a black woman who's actually running for Congress in Georgia. So make sure you look out for her. Um, But she made this tweet that said, uh, black lives matter until it's black women who are pregnant. Basically she was alluding to the fact that black women get more abortions than any other race. I don't know the facts on that, but basically in her line of tweets, she was saying that black women have an issue with taking care of their children, with getting abortions and all of these crazy, just like generalizations. And I got so pissed off. I had to respond, of course, but I'm just like, as a black woman for you to say that when over the course of history, black women have been the known caretakers of the household for white households throughout time like black women you know the black nanny like we still see them till this day this is something like there are plenty of white people even friends of mine who will say my nanny raised me more than my parents actually did and she was black you can't make those kinds of assumptions and generalizations and that's just another added thing on top of you know the medical sphere where a black woman goes into the hospital and says, hey, I'm having this pain. And the doctor's like, eh, you'll be fine. Take the Tylenol, go home. And then she dies. It, it's, there are so many layers to that kind of just like being dismissed and yeah. being overlooked on top of oppression. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting, you know, Serena Williams talked about that when she had her child. And I I don't want to misquote because it's been some time, but I was so 
just kind of like inspired and fist bumping reading the news at home that she would take that incredibly personal experience and use it as a rallying cry. But she talked about how she was having incredible postpartum pain and the doctors told her it was normal. And she advocated for herself and said, this is not normal. And they finally listened to her and tested her. And I believe she had like some sort of crazy clotting problem. You know, she could have died. And and she saved herself in the medical institution. And, you know, it isn't in the past. And then, if I may, if I may, I don't know who this you woman may. is in Georgia, Please. but I'm now furious. <laughs> what bothers me about what this woman is saying is that, again, she's, she's cherry-picking her facts. She's not examining what poverty and systems of oppression do to people and particularly women. She's also not acknowledging the fact this was the last time I looked this up, this was the statistic. So forgive me if it's changed a bit. It's been a few years, but I believe the number is either 64 or 65% of women who have abortions already have children. So Mm -hmm. we're not talking about, you know, I, I feel like there's been this horrible PR game played where like women who decide to make that very private decision have been publicized irrationally as like these young harlots who won't keep their legs closed. First of all, young women deserve to have sex just as much as young men do. And who do you think they're having sex with if they're getting pregnant? Certainly not other women. Second of all, what upsets me about this again is that if we know that the the predominant number of women who are choosing to terminate pregnancies already have children, they're choosing to terminate pregnancies so that they can take care of the children they have, so that they can financially provide for, to the best of their ability, the children who are in their families. Their husbands aren't getting judged. Their partners aren't getting judged. And if we're talking about especially the rates of abortion in low-income communities of color and the women in them, we're talking about communities that have been systemically oppressed, that live in deserts of opportunity, be it a food desert, a job opportunity desert, a healthcare desert. How dare anyone say that generations of of systemic tools of oppression, whether it be redlining or scientific experimenting on black women, also look that Mm -hmm. up. How dare someone suggest that that is not impacting the current health data of young women in America who happen to be women of color. That makes me fucking pissed. It's more than just a trending topic. This is not going away. This has been around for centuries. This is not the first time this is coming up and this unfortunately probably won't be the last, but if we have the knowledge, then moving forward, when it goes, when it comes time, you know, to vote in November, when it comes time for your local elections, because that's where the true change begins. You have to start voting on the local level. Once it comes time for those things, we will remember this moment and we will remember the research that we did and the education that we gained and how we tried to learn more and we will utilize it better moving forward. I really hope that's my hope at least. I really hope so. Something that did make me hopeful and just the way you said that made me want to share it. And it, it sort of crystallizes the, the two, you know, hot button voting topics we've just been talking about. Because there's this big thing, I think, that so many of us who've been in these spaces and who've been doing all of this work as activists and community members for a long time, I can't wrap my head around how a person could be a single issue voter on the subject of abortion. Like, I just Mm -hmm. can't. Because Mm -hmm. I'm like, so you are telling me that you believe a a cluster of non-viable cells to be more important than every living person on this planet. Like, you're telling me that if you were 
you know, picture it. You're in a burning building and at the end of the hall is a five-year-old child screaming, sobbing in terror, thinking they're going to die and a silver canister full of a bunch of fertilized embryos. Mm-hmm. You're telling me you're, you're going to leave the child to burn and save the embryos. That's what mm-hmm. you're telling me. Like it doesn't, no one would do that in yeah. practice. And, yeah. and, and I, what then I have to do is take my thing where I go, I don't understand. And I have to take a deep breath. And, and in the space that the air in my lungs has just created, I have to make just that much space to say, talk to me about where you come from. Like talk, talk to me. Will you talk to me about why to help me understand? Yeah. It doesn't change my opinion. It helps me understand how to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And what is inspiring to me right now is that one of my best friend's moms who lives in Southern California, who is a very conservative white woman, like conservative churchgoer, had a conversation with my, one, of my, one of my best friends, one of my best guy friends who shall remain nameless for you know purposes of this conversation. And he's a very progressive person. And he's been out at the marches with me and my whole crew all week. And um, for so much longer than this, like he's one of my oldest activist friends. And he said, you know, I had a conversation with my mom this week and she said, you know, I just don't know how to reconcile with this because so many of the people who care about these issues support the big issue I don't support. And, and he saw something change with his mom where he said, mom, I get it, but you've known women who've had to make that decision. And because you, you know, the circumstances, you haven't loved it for them, but you've supported them. And he said, what I would offer you is that you're a mom. What if it was me? Because to, to place weight in the idea of a, of an eventual child that is not actually alive, that is not a baby that is in the world to place more weight on the idea of an eventual child than on the life of a man. He was like, you saw, you saw the photos of that man. That man was 46 years old. That man has children who now don't have a dad. Why isn't he standing on his own two feet worth more than the idea of a person who doesn't exist yet? And it was like a big aha moment for his mom. Mm. And I thought, oh shit, if we're going to get your mom, your mom could get her friends, you know? I was just like, this is like, this is it. Like, it's, it's actually really nice. It's nice over here. Like, we're not here to to demean you, we're here to ask you to think more deeply about what you believe in versus the like storybook PR scheme of people who want you to vote in a way that actually goes against most of your interests. Right. I think that another big thing that I've been seeing, you know, from people who, you know, maybe they were Bernie supporters, maybe they were Elizabeth Warren supporters. A lot of people who aren't on board with who our Democratic candidate is going to be, which is Joe Biden, are like, I'm voting Green Party because I don't trust that. And I'm like, uh, no, please don't do that. (laughs) Because they're like, we have to dismantle the two-party system. I'm like, yeah, let's do that after we make sure that the person who's a white supremacist who's in the White House is out of the White House. Yeah. Let's work on that. Like, let's, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Hopefully one day hasn't happened since like the 1700s, whatever, but like, we'll, we'll get to that eventually. 
But right now, we have to come together. We cannot have people voting for Harambe again, okay? Because they didn't want to vote for Hillary. We cannot have that. We have to be united at the polls and we have to get out there and we have we have to. If you are if you are a Black Lives Matter advocate and believer and consider yourself to be an ally or are working towards it and you want to see the system change, we have got to have got to get Trump out of the White House. And I don't know any other way to put that other than that's just what we have to do. And then when local voting happens, you've got to do the same thing again. Make sure that you're not voting these people who have these, you know, radical ideas of the way that, you know, policing is supposed to be and letting people off for all of these horrible crimes, letting police officers who are meant to protect and serve off with not even a slap on the wrist. Breonna Taylor's killers are still working. They're They're still there. Yep. Sandra Bland's murderers are still out there. They're still able to get jobs in law enforcement. As of now, I mean, we have, we have the four, the four officers arrested in the murder of George Floyd. As of now, they have been arrested, but they haven't been convicted yet. They have not been convicted. And that's how we have to think about it. The work is not done. People are getting excited about the little wins. And I understand that. But it's so much more than that. And that's also one murder. Mm-hmm. There's many, many more. And what I want people to understand is celebrate the wins, but don't miss the long game. Like when you talk about what's happening, when we see that these protests have been happening all week and we've been able to reallocate $150 million of the Los Angeles city budget for community investment. That's $150 million out of a $3 billion budget that goes to the police and a $3 billion budget that goes to the sheriffs. So that's $6 billion. I read that the the LAPD is reporting that they have a $1.8 billion budget, but $3 billion sounds more like it's correct. I don't, you know, they just, they'd be skewing the numbers to sound however they want to sound. So it looks like they're taking a big hit, even Mm. though they're not. But the thing is, regardless of of how the numbers are going to come out on paper with what we're looking at and what you're also seeing online, 54% of California's budget goes to policing. And you hear police say that they are overworked, that their departments are tasked with too much. And it's like, well, yeah, okay. Why do we call the police when someone's having a mental health crisis? Why do we call the police if we get an offender bender? Isn't that a waste of their time? Aren't they supposed to be investigating like murders and things? Shouldn't there just be like a, like a traffic enforcement office? If we, and this is where this argument for defunding comes from, what it means is a partial divestment. What it means is a reallocation of funds. What it means is rather than investing, whether again, whether we say that it shakes out to be 1.8 or $3 billion in policing, just in Los Angeles, I'm not talking about California, we could pay for housing for the homeless. We could pay for addiction Mm -hmm. treatment services. We could pay for domestic violence shelters. We could pay for better food in our schools, computer labs in every school. We could upgrade our education systems. We could do so much with that money that would lower any reason that police are ever even called. And so police could work less on the things they shouldn't be doing in the first place there. We could Mm -hmm. ease the stress on their department 
And we could quite literally change the makeup of our city. Like we don't Mm -hmm. really have any more money for parks and rec because it's all going to policing. And it's like, everybody I know wants to take their kids to the park. It's not like you're allowed to take your kid to the police station and like leave them there. Like it's daycare, (laughs) you know, we need, we need investment in these things. And, and it would actually all the data shows be better for everyone. Mm -hmm. So that's why, like when we look at stuff like this, I say all of that only to echo your point that local elections matter. Mm-hmm. Your local judges, your local DAs, the people who we elect in our cities, when people, to your point, are like, I don't believe in either party. It's like, well, guess what? You are an adult and you don't get to throw a temper tantrum in the sandbox anymore exactly. and say, exactly. I don't want to. You have to. You participate. You have to. Or you are taking the side of the oppressor, period, end of mm-hmm. story, where you can be an activist, where you can show what you that you don't believe in a two-party system or that you're not exactly totally thrilled with a candidate. Again, pull up your pants. I don't care. Where you can mm-hmm. show that is in your local elections. Get involved in local politics. Know who's running 1, in your city. That's where you mm-hmm. get to do that stuff. And if you want to press, if you don't, let's, okay, again, argument's sake, you don't love Joe Biden? If you want to press Joe Biden, elect progressive mayors and governors. Mm-hmm. They'll do that. They'll do that with the exactly. Congress and the Senate. They will do that. And what I would like to say again, whether he's your perfect candidate or not, I would so much rather have a man who worked in the service of greatness of our first black president, who mm-hmm. launched It's On Us to combat sexual assault on college campuses and told boys to get their shit together. I would so much mm-hmm. rather have that man with his imperfect record, which most people his yeah. age have, unfortunately, but it's a reality of age and bad decision-making that was very normal at, in some of those instances historically, I would rather have somebody who has consistently tried and stumbled, but tried to grow and right. served people who don't look like him, who don't have the body he has, than a white supremacist Nazi sympathizer in the White House. Like this doesn't feel like a choice. It's plain as day. Plain as day. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's very obvious and it's plain as day. And if you cannot look at the way, my grandma and I were just talking about this, at the way that he is inciting violence by the police force against people of color and black people just in general, but against even our allies, our white allies who are protesting alongside us, the footage looks like the civil rights movement. It looks like the white allies that came down to protest and march with Martin Luther King Jr. It looks like that. Like the people who, if, you, if you've chosen now, you're a white person and you've chosen to, to have black people's back, mm-hmm. you might as well be black and we're going to treat you the same way. That is how the police have been treating all of us. Like it's a collective group. And if you cannot see that, I mean, I was talking about policing on my stories last night and I finally posted an IGTV video about it because people wanted it, but I know it's going to get flack, but the way that policing even began was with racism, with white supremacy, with KKK members. That is how policing began to police black people and make sure that there would be no uprising of freed slaves who then wanted to go and retaliate against their old masters to make sure that there weren't, you know, 
black people who maybe had come into a little money who were trying to buy property and actually establish something for themselves. That mm -hmm. is how policing began. And then you have these KKK members who are a part of the now official police force who are teaching the next generation of cops. Yes. And it continues on and on and on and on. So, yes. you know, there's a lot of people who will say, you can't argue that, oh, the president's not all that bad. No, he is. He's a piece of shit. That's the end of discussion. But there are people who will argue not all police are bad. And I know that. My uncle was a police officer. I know that. Not all cops are bad. But when you are a part of a system that has been racially unjust for centuries and for, you know, years, by even in most of our parents' lifetimes, police were KKK members even now to like, as of last year, I think that was the last um, kind of notable uh, case of a, a person who was in the police force. They went to his house and they saw a bunch of KKK memorabilia. Like that was last year, 2019. Think about how many more are there now? Like it, this has not changed the, the racist rhetoric and this kind of just unjustness about the entire thing and, and the preconceived notions and the stereotypes mm. and things like that have been passed down. These are not, these are not new things. This is not something that's made up. This is, this is at the crux of what policing is and what it has always been. And I think that that can be really hard for people to understand. And look, I get it. I, like you, I have, I have some friends who are cops, who are people who I, love and who I trust and who I ask a lot of questions to and hear the way that I had this conversation with them because one of them reached out to me year, years back and said like, I got to admit, I'm having a really hard time with the way you talk about police brutality. Like you don't know what we're up against and like, you know me and you know, I'm not like that. And I was like, but here's the thing. I... And I, and I said this to him and it was a hard conversation, but I was like, look, I, I went through like a police boot camp to do a job. And I said, mm. and I will never forget that my team leader said to me, you know, obviously like you try to get out of a situation nonviolently. I was like, okay, well that one sentence doesn't teach me how to do that. And he yeah. said, but you know, when you draw your weapon, you have to know you're drawing your weapon because you're going to use it. And you have to know that you're going to take somebody's life. And I was like, but, but I don't understand why. Like, why, why don't you, especially, I go, okay, let's say for argument's sake, this person is a suspect in something. They're part of a larger, I don't know, crime organization that you want information on. I don't understand why, like, why wouldn't you shoot someone in the leg to deter them? Exactly. Keep them alive. And he, he goes, well, because then they sue. And I was like, well, imagine oh, what wow. they do when they die. <laughs> imagine what happens when they die. But, you know, it was oh. such a and, and it didn't seem weird to him. And and I used that example. And I said to my friend who is a cop, I said, so here's. I came into that room as a new person and I was shook by that answer, shook by that answer. And I said, but I've worked in a toxic working environment where it got so bad and it was so bad for so long that to what you were saying earlier about the deaths you see on the news, I got desensitized to it. And, and stuff that was really gnarly, I knew was bad, 
But like the everyday stuff, I sort of was just tuning out to. And it wasn't until I left it and I started to talk to other people about what I'd been going through and their jaws would drop and some people would start crying and people would get really angry. And I was like, oh, all of that was really bad. Yeah. Oh. Right. And so it's not normal. (laughs) It's not normal. And I think toxic systems, when you are in them every day, you begin to have a tolerance for toxicity that you are unaware of. So when we talk about your family members or the people who I know, I don't believe them to be toxic people. What I believe is that they are subconsciously being dulled to toxicity. What I believe is that the system, to your point, is the problem. The system, not only, you know, you referenced the era of the freed slaves and which is an ironic thing because I'm like, those people were not free, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, and slavery people, was never yeah. abolished, but you know, whatever. white people do your homework, please. Um, but I think about, yes, there were these KKK patrols, but even prior to that, the, the origins of policing in the American South come from networks mm-hmm. of white men who volunteered to be slave catchers, who mm-hmm. volunteered to quote unquote, uh, capture people's property and return it to them. Mm-hmm. So policing has quite literally been built on the protection of property over black bodies because right. back then black bodies were property. And now exactly. we put black bodies in prison at a, an exponential rate to their white counterparts. And we make them do prison labor for 26 cents an hour, which is really mm-hmm. like an infinitesimal step above slavery. Yes. So the that's why I day- say slavery was not abolished. It was redesigned. And if anybody listening wants to know more about that, the 13th documentary by Ava DuVernay is like the, that's where you start the knowledge because that it opened my eyes. I could not mm. believe the way that the system has been able to get away with what they've been able to get away with for all these years. But so much of it, I think happens behind closed doors. And so much of it is built on this idea Look, we all want to have a hero. We all want to know we have someone to call. We all, we lionize our law enforcement because we love the idea of being able to call someone when we're in distress. And for the people who show up and help you when you are in distress, that is true. But what happens when so much more in a ratio, in public health data, so much more often those people show up and people get hurt. I think it's hitting people now because now everyone's phone is its own TV station. And all Mm -hmm. these people who went out to protest everywhere were showing these videos. I mean, I was standing on Third Street in L.A. and I saw a a kid who, by the way, happened to be a white kid who'd gotten in the front to stand in front of black people. A line Mm -hmm. of white people did this. And I was like, what am I seeing here? Like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching this like gawky, tall, he couldn't have been more than 22-year-old white kid with his hands in the air screaming, my hands are up, don't hit me. And a police officer is beating the shit out of him with a baton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this was down a line of people. Two of my friends got shot with rubber bullets. I watched videos of people getting run over by the police with cars, getting run over with horses, people getting shoved and hit for absolutely no reason. Peaceful protesters screaming, we're being peaceful. Don't shoot at us. We're being peaceful. Mm -hmm. Please stop. And it wasn't happening. And then to your point, 
we hear that so he could take a photo op, which by the way, again, look it up. He copied an exact pose of Hitler's holding a Bible. Donald mm-hmm. Trump did a photo op in front of a church holding a Bible in the air as a signal to all of these white supremacist terrorists. And mm-hmm. he did so by clearing a peaceful protest in Lafayette Square in front of the White House with tear gas and rubber bullets. Tear gas, for anyone who cares to learn, we're going to school today, everybody. For anyone who cares to learn, is actually illegal to use against your own citizens under the Geneva Conventions. So we are under the order of Bill Barr at the at at the executive order of the president committing war crimes against American citizens Mm -hmm. that are being carried out by the very people who we pay, by the way, to keep us safe. They're supposed to keep the people safe, not the property safe, and that is where the systemic root of racism and policing shows its ugly head because we still see police protecting property, not people. Amen, Sophia. Yes, exactly. And you know what's crazy? I got a DM the other day from a non-black person who was like, well, I don't, I just don't get it. Like if you don't, if you don't trust the police to protect you, who do you call when something goes wrong? And I really had to think about it because I was like, as much as I would love to call the police when something goes wrong, they're not the first person that comes to mind. I would call my boyfriend or I would call my male cousins or, you know, even my uncle that I said was a cop. I would trust him way more than just any random police officer that's supposed to be coming to my aid, which we know living in LA, there, there was a time once when I did have to call the police and I was put on hold like 20 times. And then it took 40 minutes before somebody actually even drove by and he wasn't even the one who was sent to help me. I had to go and cross the street and ask him to come and help me because I was being verbally assaulted and almost physically assaulted by a man who hit my car. Like, I, I'm sorry. No, we, we don't have the same experience with the police. We, we don't. And it's not okay. Like, I'm not going to say that it is, but I think when people here defund the police, they're like, what does that mean? Like, you're just going to take all the money away from police. Like, no, that's not the idea. And I think that most officers would probably be happy, happier at least, to have the support of, you know, more community outreach and people that are able to come and help us out when things like this happen so that they don't have to, you know? And I, I, I think that there's just so much, there's so much work that needs to be done within the police system just in general. I, and you know, you also have the people who are like, well, cops put their lives on the line for us every day and they're probably scared. Yeah, I'm sure they are, but I'm also sure and positive that putting rookie cops in some of the worst crime neighborhoods as like a hazing process is probably a shitty idea. And I'm sure that even still with all of their police training, because I do know that cops get some type of like race training to know how to handle people of different communities and different races at that particular point, when you are in your late twenties or thirties and you have now become a cop and now you're taking this race training, you already have your ideas and your own stereotypes Mm -hmm. about people of color and different people before you even get that kind Mm -hmm. of training. And you're still going to follow the order of your superiors who most likely came up in a different era than you did. And something Mm -hmm. I would like to highlight again, and I say this again with a deep amount of love for the people who I know in law enforcement, 
the training isn't enough. And they'll tell you that. They may not tell you that on the news, but when you have a friend on the force, they will tell you some shit that is really hard to hear. This is, this is not, this can't just be blamed on the guys who are signing up to be on the force because they want to quote unquote protect their city. It is a system that is setting them up to fail and is setting them and is setting them up to be cultured by this insidious disparity that they don't even necessarily know about. And, you know, obviously we know there's some guys who sign up because they just like, they want to be badge bullies and they want to carry guns. And that's a whole other scary thing. But this is something we need to address. We need to address why cops get four hours, four hours of training on what to do in a mental health crisis. And it's not actually a class. It is a booklet that they are given that they estimate takes four hours to read. They never have training with a person on how to de-escalate a situation with a mentally ill individual. How can we then expect them to go out and de-escalate these situations with any kind of accuracy? And the thing is, we have social workers, we have experts in the city who know how to do this. There could be completely nonviolent interactions happening anytime someone has a mental health problem if we had a different number to call. And this is what the idea of defunding the police means. It means reallocate the funds. Like, why are we paying? I was at a protest on Tuesday. We were two city blocks. There were five helicopters, five police helicopters mm-hmm. circling over us. Perfectly, mm-hmm. per- perfectly peaceful. Yes, there was chanting. Yes, there were speakers. It was beautiful. Like so much so that the cops actually put away their riot gear. But there were five police helicopters circling above us. And if a helicopter costs $10,000 a day to keep in the air and like $3 million a chopper, what could we be doing with that money? You know, exactly. Let's put that money into schools. Let's put that money into our kids. Let's put that money into people in our communities who are suffering. Right. Right. Because living in LA, you cannot deny that the homeless population in LA is astronomical. It is unbelievable. Absolutely ridiculous. The way that we treat our homeless in this city. And imagine if that money was put towards that, put towards more housing, put to more, put towards more shelters. Like it could, it could change. It could change everything. It could change everything, but they would rather put, what did you say? 54% into policing. It's actually 54.8% of our budget goes into policing. And it's something like another, it's either 29 or 32. I'm trying to remember the pie chart in my head, um, goes into fire. And like, obviously Mm -hmm. in Southern California, we need an awful lot of investment in fire. It's a terrifying thing that we go through here. I am by no means saying they should be making less, but why, why is fire only a fractional percentage of policing? Why aren't mm-hmm. they equal? Exactly. Why isn't policing reduced to be equal to fire? And then we have all these other social service programs that, to your point, take those issues off the plates of the police and everybody has an easier time doing their jobs and can do their jobs more specifically. Right. And more efficiently. Yeah. I mean, we should just march down there and have a conversation with them because I think we just figured it out. <laughs> Honestly, I'm like, I'm like, Mr. Mayor Garcetti, sir. Let's go. Oh my gosh. I it's it's so disappointing to see, but it's disappointing nationwide. Like 
it it really is mind boggling to me the people who and I don't know if they were like this before. You have people who are overzealous before they join the police force and then they get a badge and a gun and they're like, you know, ready to shoot it. But I I just we know we know that all cops are not bad. We know that there are good cops. We've seen the videos of the good cops who are, you know, marching Mm -hmm. alongside the protesters and all of that is well and beautiful. But I read something the other day that says, you know, in the medical system, you don't say like, oh, that's just, you know, one really horrible doctor. Not all doctors are bad. No, one horrible doctor makes doctors look bad. That is that is what happens. And that doctor loses their license. I, exactly. I saw, I saw a similar version of a tweet, which I really loved, and somebody said, okay, guys, let's talk teachers' unions. When a bunch of teachers, God forbid, find out a teacher is a pedophile, they mm-hmm. don't say he's not that bad. They yeah. fire him and say he doesn't represent the rest of us. Yes, like, exactly. What? What? Where is the disconnect here? And, and you know, this is where, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit something to the listeners I'm sh- I'm certain there's many of you sitting listening to this who are like nodding and who are like fuck yeah and I love you guys and I also want to say I love I love you if you're listening to this and this is a hard conversation for you. Mm-hmm. And that's where I want to challenge you. What I want to say is if all of this sounds new or if the idea of saying defund the police sounds triggering or it makes you uncomfortable, please sit with that. Please examine yeah. it. Please commit yourself to doing some of the research on the people's budget, on what Black Lives Matter is. And I'm not talking about what the conspiracy theories are or the people who've Mm -hmm. tried to co-opt it and make the movement look bad. I'm talking about the real movement. Look at the people behind it. Look at the demands. Look at why so many of us work with them. Because, and Cammie, you said this, and it is something I 100% agree with, and this is like the moment for it. You've said that if you are not an ally, you are an enemy. 100%. And listeners, I need for you to understand that that is true. This is the time. You are either an ally. You are either willing to live in service of your community. If you are a person who follows scripture, you love thy neighbor or you Mm -hmm. don't. And being silent when you are silent. As the famous adage goes, as we have been taught by Dr. King, as we were taught by so many incredible civil rights leaders over generations, if you take, if you sit in silence, you take the side of the oppressor, period. So please, I encourage you guys, if you care about one of us in this conversation, both of us in this conversation, if you're, if you're just getting to know me because you saw that Cammie's on this podcast or vice versa, like... We're here to be real with you, to invite you into the conversation, not to call you out. This is an invitation to come in and and to deepen because we don't have any more time. Exactly. Black and brown bodies are dying in the street. We don't have time for people to ignore what makes them uncomfortable anymore. We didn't have time before and we certainly don't have any more of it. Right. And when people say, you know, well, I'm not racist, but there can be no more, but there can be no more gray area. It's either black or it's white putting, you know, perspective colors, color scheme, but that's how it has to be. It's either you are an ally or you're not. 
And that's the conversations I've been having with people. There are some people on social media who genuinely want to learn more and they want to be educated and I'm happy to do that. But then you have the other people who want to do the back and forth. I'm like, no, just say that you are not an ally and that you are an enemy. Just say that you're not on the side of progression. Say that you're a racist and just keep it moving. Because I, I don't have time to do the back and forth with you when there are people who actually want to learn and do better and know more. And then you have, you know, the all lives matter people. We know all lives do figuratively matter. All lives matter, yes. But at this particular point in time, we are focusing on black lives that are being snuffed out, not just by, you know, everyday white supremacists, but by our police who are supposed to be the ones who are protecting and serving us. So because of that, we need to give that movement mm -hmm. the proper attention. We need to give black people the proper attention so that we can then move forward. So then, then all lives can matter. Yes. And don't well, even get me started on black trans lives because I can go off all day about that. Those matter too. Same. And you cannot say black lives matter without saying black queer lives matter as well. It, it, you, have, you can't pick and choose anymore. You cannot pick and choose anymore. When you elevate the people who are suffering from the worst kind of oppression, you elevate the community as a whole. When you yes. do not focus on them, you run the risk of elevating only part of the community, which is already doing better than they are and leaving them behind. Yep. So if you can't get exactly. on board with Black Lives Matter, what it tells me is that you don't actually think your life matters all that much either. Because mm -hmm. Patrice Cullors, who's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, says when, we, when Black people get free, we all get free. Mm -hmm. And that is ultimately true. Until Black women are succeeding in my industry, I'm not really going to succeed in my industry. And by the way, for your racist uncle who says like, well, what about Oprah or Beyonce? It's like, okay, that's two. That's two yeah. people. It Bravo. doesn't count. <laughs> it like, doesn't count. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. As amazing as they are. The most. does not count. It does not yeah. count. And I mean, there are so many arguments that I know people are having with their family members who, you know, maybe they're not fully racist, but they're complacent with, ra with racism and you know, they're, they're trying to have these tough conversations and I know that it's difficult. I get it. But at the end of the day, sometimes you just have to have the hard conversations. And what I've been telling people is I need for you to stand up for me when you're in the rooms where you see everybody that looks like yourself. One thing that I was talking about the other day is, you know, a white person can be in a room Full of black people. Say it's one person, one white person in the room of 50 black people, and they're like, I'm the only white person here. That's how black people feel every day. <laughs> That's how we feel in the workplace. That's how we feel at school. That's how we feel when we go shopping. That's how I feel when I'm being followed around a store. That's how I feel, you know, everywhere. That's how we feel all the time. So because you are so represented in identifying the fact that and accepting the fact that you do have white privilege of being represented, I need for you to speak up when you're in the spaces that I will never be. I need for you, whether it's in your household, at the dinner table with your family, or whether it's, you know, when you're out with your coworkers and somebody says something that's anti-Black or anti-POC, whether it's when you're in a meeting and your boss says something that you know is wrong, and maybe you have all white employees. 
just because I'm not there, just because your best friend who's black is not there doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that you just let it go. Because if I was there, would you let it go? Think about that. If your best black friend was in the room when your racist father said something that is anti-black, would you just sit there or would you say something? You have to think about it that way. It's not enough just to be like, okay, nobody heard it. Thank God nobody heard my racist mom say, you know, X, Y, and Z. No, you heard it. And if you want to be an ally of this community and this change, and if you want to see real progress happen, you're going to need to start speaking up because there's no more room for you not to do that anymore. There's no more room to be silent anymore. Yeah, it's so important. And and I think about how so many people are nervous to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing in mm-hmm. this moment or who or like you said, you have a family member who says something that's ignorant, like, well, they just shouldn't protest this way. It's like, well, what way should we protest? Because you've told us every way is bad. You know, it was, can't even kneel. We can't kneel on the, yeah, on like, the sidelines of a football like, game. We can't. What can we do? <laughs> what are we supposed to do? So it's interesting. You know, Bernice King, Dr. King's daughter, speaks a lot about this. And she said something that I thought was really beautiful, that when her father was alive, they hated him for being a marcher. But once he died, history loved him for being a martyr. Mm-hmm. And our leaders shouldn't have to martyr themselves to be respected. Exactly. And if you love the words of someone like a Dr. King, if he were alive today, would you be marching with him today? Mm-hmm. And I think those are really important questions for people to ask themselves. You know, in the midst of learning or unlearning, it's better to show up than not to show up at all. And if you have mm-hmm. reverence for historical revolution, if you have reverence for how America was created on a revolution, you have to also own that America was created and built its wealth on the backs of black and brown bodies. Yeah. And until we, until we acknowledge fully and make peace with that reality by offering condolences to our ancestors, we're going to carry that pain. And our friends who walk around in those bodies are carrying that pain in ways that we cannot imagine. Yeah. And I, I think these are just important things for people to sit with and, and they're important to then track because to your point, if we track generational trauma, if we track generational uh, racist behavior in policing, if we track um, the generational legacy of this country, it it cannot be lost on, I know it's not lost on us, and I would imagine that Mm -hmm. it cannot be lost on anyone who's listening, that we have a long track record. And we've referenced his current policy, but we have a long track record of the current president of the United States being very openly, publicly, and proudly racist. Google the Central Park Five. There it is. Coming from a family that was invested in the KKK. To your point, the Central Park Five housing discrimination lawsuits that were launched against the Trumps in New York for their... Uh, discrimination against black people who were looking for housing. I mean, the list is so long in a country where we all only get to eat because of the labor 
of a workforce that is predominantly brown, Donald Trump is calling Mexicans rapists and drug dealers. Uh, He's not acknowledging, if we want to talk about drugs, which is not to further his argument, but simply to say, even the disparity in punishment for the drugs that people do, the, the way that white people are charged versus people of color are charged for the same recreational hobbies or habits or addictions is atrocious. And we have a man in the White House who historically has loved to sow racial division and who is clearly getting off on doing it now. And as upsetting as this is to all of us, something that I find wild is that because of the beginning of your career, you've had personal interaction with this man. And if it is not (laughs) like Jesus, if it is not and I, I always want to be sensitive to women's stories. So if you're like, I really don't want to talk about it. Oh, no, we don't I'm, have to. I was actually thinking about it the whole oh, time you great. were talking about it. I was like, because oh, I've, <laughs> I've read it. I've listened to you talk about it. But for listeners who are like, what are they talking about? Will you please just spill that vat of tea? Oh, honey. So, you know, there was a time what was it now? 10 years ago, I was Miss Teen USA 2010. I was the first black Miss Teen USA in a decade. Um, Prior to my win, it was like a known thing amongst the girls of color, but mostly the black girls that would compete is that every year there would only be two black contestants and only one would proceed forward to like top 15 or top 10. Hold the phone. You mean two from the very beginning? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, I mean, that's how it has always kind of been. Out of 50 states. It was very rare, 51, because we include um, District of Columbia. So that's its own, own, you know, state. So, but for years, I mean, probably there's probably been different times where, you know, maybe a third black girl might have snuck in there in, you know, the top 15. But there was generally only two black contestants in the entire pageant for both Miss and Teen. Miss wow. Universe is a completely different situation because universal beauty standards are different. So, you know, they kind of acknowledge that a little wow. bit better versus Miss USA and Miss Teen USA being very, very much predominantly white and very, very little, um, you know, diversity as far as black women are concerned. So it was myself in South Carolina, my years with Team USA. We're still close to this day, obviously. Um, and then I ended up winning. So after I won, my first kind of real job was that I got to go to Miss Universe, which was in Vegas that year. Um, that was kind of the only reason why I got to go because it was in the, the country. Um, and so I went and, you know, there was one day that I was told by my travel manager, you're going to meet Mr. Trump today, who was the owner of the Miss Universe organization at the time. He did not come to the Miss Teen USA pageant that I competed in. He only really spent his time on Miss USA and Miss Universe because those were the ones that were making him money. At the time when I competed, uh, Miss Teen USA was no longer televised. The last time it was televised was in 2008. So he lost interest because there was no money. So I never got to meet him before this time. So I go to Miss Universe. I hear that I'm going to meet him. I'm like, 
excited, but also nervous because it's like, you're meeting the CEO of your company. Like you're meeting your boss essentially for the first time. And obviously the only thing that I knew about him was that he was a celebrity and he owned, you know, the pageant system. I didn't even know about the central park five at the time. I didn't know about his history with, um, you know, housing disparities. I didn't know any of that. So, because I was, I mean, I probably should have done the research, but I was 17. I also was now Miss Teen USA. Like, this is my job now. What am I going to do? Quit? No. So, before I meet him, I get a warning from, I won't say who it was, but she was my travel manager. And she was just like, I'm just going to let you know now, Mr. Trump does not like Black people. So, don't be offended if he doesn't want to shake your hand or if he doesn't, you know, warm up to you right away. If he does, then you might just be the type of black that he likes and like, good for you. And I remember being 17 and being completely, I was fucking stunned. I was stunned. I was like, I, and I was terrified now because now I'm like the type of black that he likes. Like, what the, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. Like I, I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, which is predominantly Jewish, but we have, you know, a pretty diverse population, at least in my high school, I went to a public high school and I, most of like my best friends were black, but I also had friends that were Persian and Indian and all different Jewish, white. I went to more bar and bat mitzvahs than I can even count. And I just known to be, you know, a part of communities that were accepting in that Mm -hmm. kind of way. Mm -hmm. So to hear the type of black that he liked. I'm like, what is that? What does that mean? And I didn't even get a chance to ask because I was in shock. And also, what does that mean? Because an adult has just said to you, he does not like black people. mm -hmm. Don't be surprised if he won't shake your hand. Mm -hmm. And then I hear, unless you're the kind of black that he likes. And I have like the, I have like the throw up chills yeah, Because I can't help but think about like what has come to light, all these old videos of these like parties that he would throw with mm-hmm. like inappropriately young women. Oh, and so God. then I'm like, yes. is he going to like you because you're young and beautiful and, mm-hmm. and is going to want to hit on you? Like, what is this person even trying to say to you? Exactly. And I, I had no idea because I obviously the Jeffrey Epstein documentary hadn't come out yet. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know any of the information. No. Like I didn't, I didn't know any of this. Um, knew social this media then? wasn't really, no, social media wasn't really a thing like it is now. I mean, Instagram had just kind of come about like within at the end of my reign, Twitter was like a new thing. Wow. Um, Facebook was the only thing that we had, but who was really talking about Donald Trump on Facebook like that? No, back then people were like posting vacation photos on Facebook. Exactly. So. I'm sitting in rehearsal at Miss Universe. This is like one of their dress rehearsals for, you know, the the live show. And it's the swimsuit part, which after this experience, I then come to realize that Trump during Miss Universe pageant, Miss USA pageant would fly with all of his friends. All of his friends would come in on their private jets from different parts of the world. I am actually not, I've been thinking about it now that I've seen the Jeffrey Epstein documentary of whether or not he might've been there at the time. Cause this was 2010 when he says that like they ended their friendship, but now looking back on it, I'm like, I wonder if he was there, but there were so many of his friends that had come to now watch these Miss Universe girls comp- like practicing in their swimsuits. 
I don't even remember who was there and who wasn't. So I'm sitting towards like the middle to back of the um, kind of like auditorium. And the Miss Universe girls are coming out one by one. He's sitting in the very middle where the runway hits so he can get a good view in the first row. All of his little friends are taking up both the first and second row behind him. So you can only imagine. It's just like two two full rows of men. Yeah, exactly. Watching these girls who are ranging from, I think, about 18 to 26, 27. So they're coming down the runway. And it was always a thing. Pageant girls knew when Trump was involved. Trump likes big boobs, no ass. So if you've got a big butt, you got to try to get that down. If you don't have boobs, you get a boob job. Doesn't matter how old you are. Um, I've known girls who are 14 years old who have got boob jobs. And he doesn't like moles. So make sure, you know, if you have a mole, you get that removed. It was like very specific things that girls just knew that he did not like. So, and obviously now I'm finding out that he also does not like black people, but we know that he likes blondes. That's, that was like the thing at the time that he really loved blondes. So we see Miss Sweden come down the runway and she's like petite, huge boobs. I think she had just got them done. They look, they look so big and blonde hair. She was super cute. She comes down the runway and he's like tapping all of his buddies. He's like, look at her, look at her. She looks great. Like she's hot. Like you can just tell he's like very performative. So he's like really living it up for Miss Sweden. And then after the S's come the T's and Miss Tanzania comes down the runway and she's stunningly gorgeous. She's a model now. She has cropped, you know, buzzed hair on the sides, stunning woman, but she's black. She's very slim. She's a, she's a model. She looks like a supermodel. She's coming down the runway and I physically watch him take his whole body and turn it to the back of the auditorium and make a throw up face like, like he was disgusted and did not turn back around until she was off the runway. And this is right before I'm about to meet this man who I've already been told does not like black people. Oh my God. I was honestly frozen because I was like, if he doesn't like this model, literal model, gorgeous woman, I don't know what he's going to like. So then it gets to the point where it's time, you know, the rehearsal ends and I'm tapped. I'm like, okay, time to meet Mr. Trump. And I'm like shaking because I'm like, holy shit, I'm in trouble. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I'm introduced to him. Immediately, he turns around, could not have been more excited to see me, to meet me. He was like, oh, my God, Miss Teen USA. This is, guys, guys, patting his, tapping his friends. Guys, this is our new Miss Teen USA. This is our new Miss Teen USA. And I'm like, hi, nice to meet you. And he's like, look at her. She's so smart. Look how she talks. Look at, and I'm surrounded by grown men. I'm a 17-year-old girl surrounded by these grown men. I felt like I was in a zoo. But at the time being 17 and being a newly crowned title holder who has worked for their ass off for this position, I'm thinking in my mind, thank God he likes me. Like, thank God I passed the test basically, because 
it could have gone the other way. And I don't know, would he have taken my crown away? Like what, what kind of response would I have gotten? At least he didn't embarrass me in front of all these people. He's like, you're so smart. Look at you. And I didn't even say, but like five words, the man, you're so smart. You're so beautiful. You're so you're Look at her. Look at her. Look at her. Look at her. Look at how she looks. Look at how she stands. Look at how she talks. And now I see that it was like, I was some type of like performance monkey. That's how, that's how I see it now when I look back at it. But at the time I was relieved. And even when I shared that story, you know, I had a bunch of Trump supporters who were like, so what's the problem? I don't get it. Like he liked you. So he doesn't hate black people. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> like, obviously you have missed the message and you have missed the point. The point is not that he was nice to me. The point is, what if he wasn't? What if I was not the type of black that he liked? What about the fact that he was over the moon and overjoyed about how smart I sounded because he probably was not expecting for me to be smart at all? Like, Connect the dots, but people who are so warped into believing him and his entire regime just are never going to get that. But that was an experience that I had. And to be honest, anytime I saw him after that, it was a pleasant experience. I also have experienced him, you know, trying to solicit pageant girls for sex and trying to get them back to his room. And oh there's that's God. a whole nother thing where girls have literally asked me for my opinion and my advice of whether or not they should go back to his room after the pageant, after they didn't even make the top 15 because he asked them to. And obviously I told them absolutely not. Like, well, first I asked, what do you want to do? <laughs> what do you want to do? This man is here. I mean, he wasn't there with his wife, I think at that particular time, but it's just like, what do you really feel deep down in your soul that you want to do? And I've seen many of those women come out about him in, you know, during the Me Too movement. And I, I don't blame them. At the time, I was like, how can you come out about this when you were actually contemplating this kind of thing? But then at the same time, it's like, I know how I felt when I was in that situation. You just want to be liked. You just want to be accepted. You just want to be, you know, seen. And he was promising these girls, you know, jobs and was actually giving them jobs at his little real estate agency that he had made up. So I've just seen a lot of the behind the scenes. And I've seen, you know, even when I was Miss Teen USA, we were told from 2010 that he was going to run for president. And we were told that if we went to an event or something where we were asked about if we were going to plan on voting for him, because he had like lightly mentioned it to the press before, um, that we were to say yes, that we were going to vote for him. And my response was absolutely the fuck not. <laughs> not voting for him over Obama? Absolutely not. But I thought it was a joke. So even when he ran for when he actually ran in 2016, I thought that it was still a joke because I was like, he was going to do it last time. He didn't do it. Like, this is all a joke for him. He doesn't actually care. But even after winning the presidency, he doesn't actually care. I know that to be a fact. He doesn't. He enjoys the you know the key key of it all he thinks it's like fun to be a leader and to have you know he, but he's he doesn't actually give a shit about this country so no, if well, you he do doesn't, you he need doesn't want to vote lead them. he doesn't want to exactly. lead he just wants to be a celebrity and he thinks that being the president is a big win for that mm -hmm. yeah. and i don't know how much clearer we have to be about that how much clearer he has to literally be about that 
for people to get it. I just, it, it is truly, truly wrecks my brain. I had to unfollow a friend the other day because she was posting videos of him no, and no. then was talking about people are looting and people are, are destroying property. And I'm like, is the looting more important than the murder? Cause I haven't heard you once mention the murder, but you've mentioned the looting multiple times. So I just want to get that clear of where you stand on that. Just so you know. But see, this is one of the things that drives me crazy about our society is that we've been told we live in a capitalist country, but we live mm-hmm. in a country where there is capitalism for the poor and middle class and socialism for the very rich. Mm-hmm. So people, mm-hmm. working people in America who are like, my family worked all their life for that business and then it burned down and when do they get to rebuild it? That's devastating. But there's been far less looting than there have been murders. So let's focus on the mm-hmm. murders, one. Number two, mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't know how to think about what property means and why it feels like a livelihood to so many of us, you need to get your head around why leaders would rather have us focus on property than on each other. Because Mm -hmm. that fight, some of us being like, focus on the murders and some people being like, but what about these mom and pop businesses? That keeps us yelling at each other. In situations like these, people are so concerned about what the media is showing them, which isn't even a portion of what's actually happening out there. Mm -hmm. And I just want to encourage everybody to look outside of mainstream media because they're not going to show you everything. They're not going to tell you everything. They're going to tell you what they want you to know. Someone was just telling me the other day, sometimes the most accessible information is the wrong information. Mm-hmm. Sometimes oh, the you way, have to dig a little bit Facebook. <laughs> like Facebook has become a cesspool. I can't even go on Facebook. I can't you know, even go on Facebook. We, we can't. We can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know. I went on for five seconds the other day and I was like, oh, no, not for me. I, yeah, I saw a. I saw a journalist who I follow the other day who tweeted, does everybody know that 70% of Donald Trump's followers are Russian bots and, and bots? And I was like, wow, okay. So when you think about the information that accounts like that are disseminating, the fighting that they're causing on the internet, the, the actual provable fake news that they're putting up on Facebook, which isn't being checked or flagged, it's very dangerous to just see something on the internet and trust it, which is why I try to point people to really trustworthy news sources. I try to tell people, follow organizations like Now This, Blavity, look at Uh what Vox is reporting, look at what CNN is reporting, and then look at reporters. Look at what Jessica Yellen is talking about. You know, she does this amazing thing on Instagram called News Not Noise, where she breaks down what's Uh really going on. And like, she ran the White House press corps. She knows what's up. And, And I think for us, we always have to dig a little deeper. I've, I've heard from a lot of people, and I know that it's like a, a general consensus that it's not black people's job to educate non-black people about what's going on in the world. And I understand that, but through my platform, I've actually found it, you know, like I was saying, more therapeutic to actually talk about these things and to educate people about these things. Because if I don't, I'm going to have them in my DMs anyway, asking me the same stupid ass questions that I could have just answered, you know, to the public or things that I think are dumb that some people genuinely just don't know. And I think that for myself, I just take it as like, you don't know what you don't know. And if we keep leaving people 
to fend for themselves and, you know, figure out this information on their own, instead of giving them kind of like a path to go down, we're just going to end up right back where we are. We have to try to open the door a little bit. I think maybe people are scared, though, to look at the system. Mm -hmm. Because if we poke holes in the things that we want to believe are here to protect us, what will that mean for us? How destabilizing will that feel? And, And what I will encourage people to do is to keep going because it's on the other side of something destabilizing that you find a deeper understanding. You know, I, I have had destabilizing moments in showing up in these spaces in, in learning how to do this work in confronting the world and myself as I reflect it and all of these things. It's like, but it, but it matters. And if, if we mm-hmm. believe that people ultimately are on this earth to grow, learn, love each other, like, isn't it our job to constantly be evolving? Mm-hmm. Isn't it our job to be seekers? Not to like stick our heads in the sand. Like ostriches do that. They're very cool to look at, but they're dumb. So why would we want to emulate their behavior? You know, we are, as humans, we are blessed with a consciousness and an understanding. Don't we want to cultivate that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I would rather spend, you know, the countless hours that I've spent watching Love Island and uh, 90 Day Fiance, (laughs) although I love them to death, I would rather use that time to further my understanding of my community and, you know, human rights, this is human rights we're talking about. So when you do have conversations with people and they're like, well, I just don't get it. Like, I I just don't see why that's important. Ask them, is human rights important to you? Is it important to you that every human being feel protected under the laws that we have in this country? Is it important to you that everyone feels understood and loved and seen? Is that important to you? great. If it's not, let us know. We're open to that, that option as well. (laughs) I'm open to that, but then like, I just don't need to fuck with you. Exactly. Just let me, I need to know though. I just want to know. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I I always ask people to like, take me back to where they grew up and like who they were at eight or 10. And I want to, I want to add to that question for you, because when we're talking about integrity, um, so much, I, I think so much of that can come from both where and how we were raised and then Mm -hmm. what we choose to investigate and dedicate ourselves to. And it was just mother's day and you, you Mm -hmm. wrote the most beautiful post. You said, I was raised by two beautiful, fiery West Indian queens who taught me everything I know about being a fearless woman. I couldn't be more blessed to be the daughter and granddaughter of the two most amazing women on this planet. Does your... Still true. That (laughs) that fiery queen energy, do you think that that permeates your life because of how you were raised, because of the integrity of your family? 1,000%. If there is something that my mom and my grandma taught me. So when I, you know, when I was, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, I was born in 1992. I'm 27 years old. Scorpio, like long walks and beach. Um, (laughs) My my, uh, family dynamic was a little bit different because my mom and my biological father were not together. Um, Once my mom had me. 
when I turned five, my biological father left and I haven't, didn't hear from him again until I was 16. But when I was two, my mom met my dad, who is, you know, my dad in my life who raised me and took care of me. So mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to have, you know, kind of like a Cinderella story of, you know, not not getting the fatherly connection that I wanted from this person, but I ended up still, you know, getting it in the end. And that's kind of like a rarity for a lot of people in my position. So, but I think that even having that kind of pain, like your first heartbreak being from a father figure or someone who's supposed to be a father figure does kind of toughen you up a little bit. Um, But on top of, you know, that situation, I had my mom and my grandma who really instilled everything into me. My mom, I mean, I'm just the oldest of, I have five younger sisters. So just imagine just a bunch of me's running around, but they're like way smarter than me. But my mom was very much like, you can do whatever you want in life. There is nothing that you can't do. It doesn't matter who's in front of you. You can do every single thing that you want. You want it, you work for it, you go get it. Mm. And that's how, that's how she was. And she still is like that. You know, if I tell her that I'm, I'm, I'm auditioning for this thing, she's like, Oh, you're getting it. It's yours. Like, why can't it be? She, she's not someone who's here for like self-doubt or, you know, self-deprecation. Like you, you stand strong and you know yourself and you, you know, stay empowered. She always says empowered women, empower women. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is the reason why I am the way that I am. I don't take no shit. And that's because of her. She taught me that. And, you know, even just growing as a woman, I, I can't imagine where I would be without her guidance and, you know, my grandma's prayers constantly. Like my grandma will call me and pray for me for like an hour on the phone and she does it all the time. Like, you know, and so that kind of energy just has fueled me throughout my entire life. There's nothing that I've ever felt that I cannot do if I work hard enough to get it. There's nothing that I feel is going to stand in my way. and you know, of course, everybody has moments of being discouraged and like, you know, everyone has self-doubt a little bit, but at the same time, I was taught that if I wanted, I just got to go get it. And that's how I've kind of learned to navigate through life. I really love that. I really love that. I, I feel very, very lucky and very blessed, honestly, because I know people who don't have a good relationship with their mothers, or maybe they don't have a mother figure in their life, or maybe they got this information from their fathers or from a friend's mom or somebody else, you know, and I feel very lucky to be in a position where I had two strong women that beat it in my head that I was going to be a strong woman too. And it, it has worked. It has worked. I do have my moments. I was crying on Instagram last night, but that was for a different reason. it does it does work but I also think that that is part of being empowered because I think that feeling your feelings requires embodiment Mm -hmm. and being fully embodied like not turning your back on yourself requires a lot of strength and a lot of strength of character because you have to look at all of it yeah 
So when I cry, yeah. I'm just like, this is because I've done the work and I've been to therapy yeah. and I've invested in myself and I can feel my feelings. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Whereas I'm like Scorpio, like cry in the shower while the water is running. So I don't have to pretend like I'm even crying at all. Like that's, but I'm very emotional and very sensitive, but I like to be in my own space with my emotions yeah. so I can feel protected. I understand that. I'm a cancer. I like to go into my little shell and I'm like, leave oh, me alone in signs. here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's how we are. That's how yeah. we are. But one thing can trigger it. And then it's just like, Shh. yeah, there it goes. You mentioned that you, you grew up in Potomac, Maryland, and mm-hmm. that you, you grew up in a very you know, diverse community, both in, you know, race, culture, religion. Um, what was, what was it like for you? What were you into when you were a little girl? I mean, I, I think diverse maybe is too strong of a word because it is mm. predominantly white, but if you want the culture, you're going to find it. So, you know, I, I found, I found my, my tribe and my, my group of people, we called ourselves the five stars. I don't know why it was just me and my friends who were the five stars. Um, and I mean, I had so much fun. High school was like my favorite time. I couldn't stand college. I like was not into institutional learning at all. I just knew that I had to go and get my degree because my parents said that that was what I needed to do. Mm. Um, But in high school, I was captain of the cheerleading squad. And, you know, I was very heavily into that. But I I knew every single person in my graduating class. There was over 500 people in my graduating class. I knew everyone's name. Mm. And I was very much the type of person who, like, was in every group. Like, I wasn't just a cheerleader. Like, you know, that was not me I wasn't like that stereotype I I knew everyone and that was important to me like I've I've always been that type of person I don't like seeing people get bullied I used to spend a lot of time in um our hallway that we had for people who had intellectual disabilities because there were people who would come down the halls and bully them and I would you know let them know that I would kick their ass and I spent a lot of time doing that Um, but I think the biggest thing of my entire childhood and even now is being a big sister. That's, that's kind of, I think even more so than my mom and my grandmother, what's kind of like formed me into the person that I am. My youngest sisters are twins and they're, they just graduated from the eighth grade last night. So, um, I'm, yeah, I know, I know I'm like, I'm terrified. I'm so sad. I, I, I refuse to accept that I'm in complete denial. Um, but I'm growing up. Yes. Yeah. I have a sister who's 26. I have a sister who's 21. I have another sister who's 19, then the twins that are uh, 13. And I consider myself to be a pretty great big sister. There's nothing that they can't come to me with. There's nothing that they can't tell me. I try to be as non-judgmental as as possible, but I'm still going to give you like the real at the end of the day. Um, and I, I think about it sometimes, even when it comes to my career and working on catfish, like I, I am, my job is to advise and to help people and to be that kind of warmth and even like the feminine energy that, you know, lets you know that like, it's going to be okay. 
And I think I get that from my role as a big sister. I always say that that's like the best job I've ever had is, you know, being their sister and, and guiding them through life because that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's so cool. It's interesting drawing that parallel from, from being the kind of the matriarch of your sisterhood in a way. Like I always feel like the mm-hmm. big sister, you're the big sister and like the second mom almost, mm-hmm. you know? Oh yes. 1000%. Per- they, there's actually, my mom probably lets them get away with way more than I do because <laughs> I'm very protective. Like I, I don't play that. around. <laughs> I wonder because you talk about kind of being this advisor and this safe space for people to come to mm-hmm. and and in the story you told me about being in the pageant world, so many of the girls would come to you for advice. Mm-hmm. And I also know, you know, you've, you've talked publicly about how you've had to really work to unlearn pageant training and to mm-hmm. learn to say what's on your mind. And yeah, I don't know. I like to be like, you always did though. <laughs> like, good for you. Yeah. You know, even if, yeah. even if it was behind closed doors and you did the quote unquote professional thing up on stage, but can mm-hmm. you... Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Like how, how are girls in that system trained and what did you want to unlearn so that you could be more yourself and so that you could be like a, like a really embodied example for your siblings? Yeah. So my mom and I were talking about it yesterday, actually, because my mom was the director for Miss DC USA and Miss Connecticut USA. So she, she was the director who, you know, put on the pageant that would get whatever girl was going to be the representative on the national stage at Miss USA and Miss Teen USA. And she had back-to-back black Miss DC USAs, which, I mean, that has never happened. So she made history there. Then her current Miss Teen USA, the current Miss Teen USA was my mom's, um, even though she's no longer a director. We were talking about it and we were talking about just girls in the pageant system and how it's very much people think of pageant girls as just being like ditzy, world peace, blah, 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 rah, 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 bullshit. They think of pageant girls as just being like pretty with no brains and, you know, walking down the stage in a bikini and that's just what they do and that's how they win and then they go on and blah, blah, blah. It's so much more than that. And there is so much training that goes on behind the scenes. We were comparing it yesterday to being a politician and like going through the training of being a politician and learning how to answer every question with political correctness. And, you know, if you do have a strong opinion, you also have to acknowledge the other side, which Mm. is something that I think I do naturally because I'm a Libra moon. I try to see both sides of everything, but everything, every opinion cannot be, I see both sides. That's literally like the go-to answer. If you do have strong convictions in something and you know people might disagree, you have to acknowledge that there's another side of the conversation, which is fine in conversation. But when you're being asked on your opinion, I had to learn that it's okay to state that opinion. And that was something that I'm pretty sure I was opinionated before pageantry, but through training and like, you know, learning different things about interview and how to answer questions and answering them within 30 seconds or less and making it concise and clear. Um, I think I kind of lost that a little bit. And so then when I got into, you know, my career as a TV host, I had my, my coach, Miss Barbara Abel, who's like my, I love her so much. She's the best um, out of New York, who one day during our training session had to stop me because I was reading something on Proctor and she was like, who are you talking to? 
Like, who the fuck are you talking to? Because it doesn't sound like you're talking to anybody but yourself. You're not connecting. And I literally think I cried because I was like, I, I may think that I'm connecting, but I'm really not because you're not learned. You're, you're not taught to do that in the pageant community, but you have to be that kind of like figure that holds the kid at the hospital and takes a picture, but you're not taught to really have like emotional connections to your convictions in the way that you feel about things, Mm. because that could be threatening and you could lose your title. And that's sad. I know a lot of pageant girls right now, black girls who are competing that are worried that maybe they'll lose their title for speaking out about Black Lives Matter. And they're black. And they're like, I want to talk about these issues. I don't care if I lose my crown. But, you know, at the same time, they don't want to because the pageant community is so anti-opinion. And I mean, for me, I I know there's a lot of pageant girls that look up to me and people in the pageant community that are still fans of mine, but there, I was always looked at as like the black sheep scarlet letter pageant girl, because I'm so vocal (laughs) because I say things like it is and I don't sugarcoat and that time in my life is done. I'm not doing that anymore. Like I'm a grown ass woman. And if I want to talk about the way that I feel about something, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Because that's how I was taught. That's how I was brought up. So it it was a level, though, of unlearning that I had to do as far as my career. Because it, it, is, it is drilled in you that, you know, yes, you can have your opinion. But there's always a but. And it was kind of stifling in a way when you, when you truly feel something that you are strong about and you're taught to have, you know, a platform to speak on, but make sure that it's a platform. That's not like, you know, say I wanted to be pro abortion. Can't do that. (laughs) Like it can't be something like that. It better be something, you know, that everybody can agree on. Yeah. It's, it's a sanitized version Mm -hmm. where they're like, maybe pick breast cancer. And you're like, well, that's important, but not necessarily personally to me. And yes. like Susan G. Komen looks to be rocking that issue. So maybe I could mm-hmm. pick the thing that is important to me, you know? Yeah. They ended up, they, they do have like designated charitable alliances that each title holder works with. So Miss Teen USA kind of gets like their choice to pick. So mine mm-hmm. was working with best buddies and people with intellectual disabilities. Um, but I also like dipped in other things. I did a lot of like women empowerment, like young girls going to inner city schools type of things. Um, cause that was something that was important to me. Miss USA is breast and ovarian cancer awareness and Miss universe is, um, AIDS. So, you know, each title holder kind of takes on their own world of issues and things that they want to tackle. But if you have something that's personal to you, if it's something that is, you know, presentable, then you can speak about it. But if not, it's unfortunate. You can I'm talk also, about it another time. I'm also just so struck, though, because I'm like, what does years of sanitizing women who are public like that do to people's impressions of what women are supposed to do in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? But I, I also see it as pageantry isn't the only community that's like that. We look at... Yeah women in politics we look at Hillary Clinton we look at Kamala Harris like you can't 
say anything too strongly. You can't come across too strong or too, you know, you can't advocate too much because people are going to say this or people are going to think that and you can't wear that color because that looks too aggressive. And it's all, it's always that. It's also crazy to me because I think about how when a woman who is public is politically strong about something, they say she's being a shrew or she seems cold mm-hmm. or she's a robot or, oh, we didn't like that from mm-hmm. her. She's angry. Yeah. Especially black women. Oh, she's angry. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if you call, yeah. well, I'm going to, I'm going to break something. Yeah. But then when a guy who's in politics gets angry publicly, they're like strong showing from Senator so-and-so. Yep. And I'm like, yep. what? <laughs> I'm so, I mean, hold on. <laughs> I'm very confused. Cause like, <laughs> if you didn't know another thing to Google at home, if this sounds crazy to you, both men and women have estrogen and testosterone in their bodies. Oh, and it turns out we're you. all allowed to have all the feelings. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> My because God. People, I, and it's it's conditioning. It's conditioning. It's conditioning from the media. It's conditioning from things that, you know, women were told in the 50s and 60s, the same women who raised us, who, you know, yeah. it's the same kind of thing. And it's just like trying to dilute the strength of people and the strength of women and the strength of black people and the strength of people of color, like always trying to just minimize it and dilute it and shove it down. I can't tell you how many times I've been told that I'm aggressive. I'm not aggressive. I have a fucking opinion. Yeah. But if you need me to get aggressive, we can go there. But if I'm just saying how I feel about something, I can't tell you too, as a pageant girl, how many, you know, non-pageant fans from the outside looking in, I'll tweet something or I'll talk about something and I'll immediately get a message from some idiot from somewhere who's like, you know, a redneck with, you know, two dogs in his profile picture and a rifle. And he, you know, is over 60 and he'll be like, Oh, sure. Showing a lot of grace for a former Miss Teen USA. I'm like, bitch, that was 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. I was 17. (laughs) Now I'm almost 30. Okay. I can have an opinion. People can formulate opinions over time. I had an opinion then. I still have one now. Mm -hmm. And you're like, the interesting thing, I am a graceful person who sometimes gets angry. Yeah. Or upset or mad or emotional or happy. Like we, we're humans with emotions. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have emotions, you'd call me a frigid bitch. But when I have emotions, exactly. you tell me they're the wrong ones. It's almost like protesting. No matter what I do, you say, well, not that way. And it's like, okay, so what exactly. way am I as a woman allowed to show up in the world exactly? I'm just curious, uh, your opinion. Yeah. Just be yourself, but not like that, right. like this. And once oh, you realize okay. that that's what they're always going to say to you, you're like, oh, I'm just going to be myself. Oh, that's that that has been me all the way. I have, I have just learned and conquered the confidence to just be myself 24 seven. If you meet me at any time, I'm exactly the same. Always. Mm. If you come and run up to me in the street and you're like, Cammy, how are you? And I'm not doing great. I'm not going to be like, I'm doing great. I'm be like, bitch, listen, the day is horrible. (laughs) My car got a flat tire. Like I'm going to really, I'm I'm honest. I just, I have found such freedom in just being myself and I'm able to spot 
things that are disingenuous and inauthentic very easily Mm -hmm. because of the fact that I've done this work to just be happy with being who I am. And that's just what it's going to be. It's not going to change. That's, that's who I am. Was there a tipping point that you can kind of look at when you, when you crossed that precipice and said, Oh, I'm just going to be myself. Was it, was it the sort of quarter life crisis move to LA or was it something oh before God. that that gave you the confidence to move here in the first place? It was before that. I think it was mm. that session with my TV hosting coach that told me mm. that I was not connecting with anyone. And like really, honestly, after that session, I think the next three sessions that we had after that, that I paid her for, obviously, were just like therapy sessions. Now wow. she's actually a certified um, life coach. Whoa. Thank God, because she was coaching me this whole entire time. <laughs> but she really talked me through a lot of these issues that I was feeling and that I was having. And and she basically let me know, like, it's not going to happen for you until you do this. So you need to do the work to get this done so that you can move forward to like the next part of what it means to, to be on camera, to be a TV personality requires more than you just standing there with your beautiful face and, you know, reciting some words. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Was, Mm-mm. was this, was this a person who you were working with while you were studying communications at Fordham or was that? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So So I, like I said, college was not my thing and I'm more of like a hands-on person. So I was doing a lot of sitting in class and sending out emails and trying to, you know, edit my reel and doing things like that. What I probably should have been paying attention. I did graduate though for everyone listening. I graduated, I, (laughs) I got my good grades or whatever I did, but I, I knew that I needed more than just my formal education, I needed some more like actual training. And so when I um, was introduced to her, it was just like, this is what I want to do. I know this is what I want to do. And it felt right. Um, And so, you know, through those courses, plus, you know, actively working, like in New York, that was what kind of made me realize that like, this is, this is what I need. This is what I want to do. And then when I decided to move to LA two years ago, almost now, it was what I really, really want requires me to step out of my comfort zone and do something that I never thought that I would do. Cause I being in New York for eight years, I never thought that I would ever move to LA. I was like, LA is not the move. New York is everything. I don't want to be anywhere else. It's the best city in the world. And then I came to LA and I was like, I guess it's not so bad here. I guess I could stay a little bit. I guess I could give it a year. And now I'm like thinking about where I'm going to buy my house in the Valley one day with my boyfriend. (laughs) So we can like start a family. And now you're like, LA is everything. It's the best city in the world. I never get it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No, literally that. Literally that. My New York friends are like, who are you again? They're like, are you okay? And you're like, do you know that here there is space and trees? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't, I could not imagine doing the quarantine life in in my New York City apartment. I would be sobbing. In the timeline, when you came here and there was all the space and all the trees, <laughs> how mm-hmm. long was it after you came here that catfish started? Like, how did so that all actually, come about? I, the way that it came about was that I thought I was being catfished because I got an email 
from a woman who said that she ran the town department for a catfish, which she does. Her name is Rachel. She's amazing. Um, but at the time when I got the email, she was like, we would love to have you come and co-host a few episodes for us. And I was like, you're like, what is this? No, I've been working in this industry for seven years at that point. This does not happen. Nobody just emails you and asks you if you want to co-host one of the biggest shows on a network. Like that's not a thing. But I was like, ah, what do I have to lose? I'm going through a crisis anyway. I'm just going to email back and forth with her because what was I doing anyway? I was sitting on my couch, drinking wine, bottles of wine, crying, looking up nine to five jobs. because I was like, I'm never going to make it. That was like my, my one biggest moment of self-doubt was when I turned 25 and I had my quarter century life crisis. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? Who am I going to be? Like, what am, how am I actively working towards my goal and my dreams? And I got that email and I remember just being like, ah, it's whatever, it's whatever. And this was the same week that I was moving to LA. I was packing up my apartment in New York and my mom was there. My sisters were there helping me pack. My boyfriend was there. My dog is psychotic. And they're all helping me pack up my apartment. And I'm still thinking like, I'm going to cancel this move. I'm going to stay in New York. There's no reason for me to go to LA. Bad things happen to ex-pageant girls when they move to LA. They just become like a part of the landscape. I don't want to be that. Like, that's not what I want. And I remember getting the email from the production company saying, yeah, so we want to have you fly out on uh, Friday. I think it was. This was a Wednesday that they were contacting me um they were like we're gonna have you fly on friday to go film the first episode here's your flight information like first class seat all this stuff and i'm like still thinking that it's bullshit because this just doesn't happen and i knew that i was gonna have to be wherever they were sending me from friday to like sunday and i knew that my movers were coming monday morning at eight o'clock in the morning to take my stuff to la and I'm still thinking that this whole thing is bullshit. My boyfriend literally had to grab me and be like, are you insane? Like, this is one of the biggest opportunities. Like, why snap out of it? And I'm just like crying, being like, I don't want to leave New York. And he's like, don't you see this as a sign? So I end up going to Iowa, which is where we were filming the episode, because sometimes the episodes start in the city that we're filming in. So I fly to Iowa, I meet the production crew, I meet everybody. I'm still thinking it's bullshit. I was just like, this is a really funny story. I'm going to get kidnapped and like, who knows what's going to happen to me. But at least I have a funny story to tell. It wasn't until the next day, which was our first filming day, Neve walks in the building and my heart just like dropped to my stomach. I was like, holy shit, this is actually happening. I was so nervous. But we filmed the first episode and it was amazing. And then I came back to New York and I cried my eyes out in my bed for the last time. And then I moved to LA and then what was it? That was in, um, <clears throat> I think that was in September of 2018. By July of 2019, they asked me to be the permanent co-host. And that was wow. after six episodes as like a guest. And I didn't even know that that was going to happen. I was still looking for other jobs and still auditioning for other things because, you know, being in entertainment, you know that it's just not, nothing is guaranteed and you just never know. People change their minds at the last minute and you never know what the people at the top are going to decide. And 
it's very uncertain. Everything is very uncertain, but I got it. And it was one of the greatest days of my entire career. That was, and it still is. I love it. It's like my dream job. I get to give people unsolicited advice. Like this is exactly what I want to do. (laughs) And I mean, this is what I want to do every day. God, isn't that so fun? You travel everywhere for the show. Mm -hmm. You guys, to your point, you show up, you try to help people, you try to help them get to the bottom of these situations they're in, but really it's to get into their emotions and their vulnerability Mm -hmm. and, and where they're where their stuff lies, you know? Yeah. What are some of the craziest things you've seen hosting the show? Oh my God. I mean, aside from the girl that thought that she was talking to Chris Brown for like three years. No. But yeah, he he didn't like to FaceTime because he thought he was ugly. I'm like, girl, I can guarantee you Chris Brown does not think he's ugly. Oh um, <laughs> aside from things like that. Oh no! Um, you know, just some of. I know, I know. I love her to death, though. She was so sweet. Poor thing. Um, aside from that, we had a story just this past season um, of sisters that were not one hundred percent certain that they were sisters. They were getting, um, they were connected by their father, who was basically saying to each one of them like outside of each other was like, that's not my daughter. I don't know why you're talking to her. And then telling the other one, that's not my kid. I don't know why you're talking to her trying to like pit them against each other. And we had to do a DNA test, which for me was very triggering because like I said, you know, my childhood growing up without my biological father, I was just thinking, you know, what if this was, me what if I you know met my long lost sibling or something like that and you know we had to get a DNA test like would I really want to open up those can of worms because then it became you know which one of them is his biological kid which one of them isn't you know and it was just that was a very emotional episode for me they ended up being sisters so thank god but I was like these some of these issues are really really tough and we're we are dealing with a lot of things that don't actually get mentioned on air and there's a lot of like mental health things that go on and a lot of people that we meet that you know maybe they were suicidal for years or you know they've been abused or they were in domestically abusive relationships and it's it is heavy like I had to really learn to kind of separate myself a little bit because I leave these situations thinking about these people for months. Some of them I still think about all the time and I check up on them, even though they don't know, I like creep on their Facebooks and stuff like that, just to see how they're doing because I, I care about that. And we do have an amazing team with our production who goes back and checks in on people and, you know, make sure that they're okay and getting whatever help that they need, which is great. But, you know, I want to see it firsthand and, they don't, you know, always give me that information because it's like, we have to do the next episode. So you're like, I need to know if this person is all right. God, I would have such a hard time. I'd be the same. It'd be like 3am and I'd be on their Instagram. Just like, is she okay? Yeah. Like going through Twitter feeds. You know, you, you hit the nail on the head because you said you're dealing with a lot of issues that don't normally get airtime. What Mm -hmm. has hosting the show taught you that was maybe not something you expected? I think one of the biggest things is, you know, like we were talking about before, we do travel a lot. 
And I think that a lot of people, especially people who live on the big coasts of like, you know, East and West coast, you see the entire nation as East and West coast. You see like, this is the world for you. The world is New York and it ends in LA. Like that is the world. But there is so much middle area that you don't see where people are so isolated. And I know a lot of people watch the show and they're like, how are people still getting catfish? Like, why are they still on these websites? Why don't they FaceTime? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you don't know how these people live. You have to put yourself in another person's shoes to understand the nearest town to them might be three hours away. I've seen that. We did an episode in Texas where we were just driving through fields for hours because people don't realize that we're at, well, Neve is the one who's actually driving the car. I never have to drive, which is great. But <laughs> we're just in the car together for hours cruising through these empty, empty, empty plains of just grass and trees and, you know, weeds and nothing else. That is America. Like while we do have the big coasts, that whole middle area of the world of, I mean, of the United States is America. That's where people live. That's where people work. That's where people develop their beliefs. That's, that is it. And that was something that I really had to learn because, you know, even with the show, like they'll, we'll fly into like the major airport. They'll be like, yeah, we're flying into LAX or whatever, but we're really going four hours away to like the middle of nowhere where there's like only thing around is a Taco Bell, which I don't mind, but. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, God, a drive through right now sounds delicious. I know. I'm already thinking about what I want to (laughs) eat. No, I miss things. So I know. I think one of the things I love most about what I've taken from this conversation, aside from the fact that you and I share parts of our brains, which is thrilling, um, is is that you've you've talked about and then highlighted, you know, by example, the claiming of joy. Like there's so much joy and so much to laugh about despite what is rough in the world and and so much to learn you know, from people who are different and so many places to explore and things to look at and do. And it's all, it's beautiful. And it, I know that I feel a lot more excited right now than I did an hour before our call when I was just like reading the news and sobbing. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) And, and I wonder what in that spirit of, of wanting to maintain our joy and fight for it. What gives you hope when you look forward? I think the biggest thing right now is just seeing the support. Like there's so much support. There's so much community. There are so many people who are ready and willing to understand people who are saying, I didn't understand before, but I want to now, or you know, I'll never understand, but I want to empathize and I want to know more. Like I'm, I'm doing the work and the people who are messaging me and commenting and saying like, I never saw it like this before. I'm so glad that you shared that perspective or, you know, I'm having, I've gotten so many messages from people who are like, thank you for your insight because of what you taught me. I'm able to go and talk to my mom who, you know, thinks that 
black people are the ones who are committing all the crime and, you know, that's why they're being arrested and, you know, thanking me for these things. And even teenagers who are coming to me being like, Hey, like I'm only 14, but my dad said something the other night that really made me upset and I knew it wasn't Mm -hmm. right. So because of what you were talking about, I used that and I, I educated myself and I tried to educate him and now he, he gets it a little bit more and I could see the change. And that is what gives me hope is the fact that people are having the tough conversations. And I feel that obviously the deaths that we have experienced of innocent black lives being lost to police or whatever else, it's horrible but it has also been the catalyst for what feels like change to me. And that gives me hope. That is what I feel like is something that I can at least hold on to for a little bit. The fact that people are down to call out brands and networks and, you know, companies for not standing up for this and for not speaking it as it is and for giving blanketed statements and, you know, bullshit, honestly, it's all bullshit. For the ones that are calling them out, I I'm I am with that. Like that is what we need to do. If we want to create the change, we have to be loud about it. It can't just be passive anymore because that does not work and it hasn't worked. So that's where I find my hope and my joy. And you know, funny memes help and TikToks, things like that. Like those things are helpful and like, you know having some sense of just like laughter and, and peace. My one of my friends and I. Um, we're talking about, you know, at the end of the day, like if there's one thing black people going to get, it's we going to get our laugh. Like we're going to, we're going to laugh through the pain. We're going to smile through it. Like we, you know, we're known for doing that. And that also gives me hope. It's like, yeah, we've been beaten down and we've seen horrible things happen, but at the end of the day, we are strong and we, you know, are able to push through the pain to be able to get to the other side. And we always have been. So as long as we just continue on that path, we're going to see the change that we're going to be the change that we want to see. And we're going to see that change because we're actively doing it. Mm. And it's important, I think, for all of us to remember that joy is an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. Like if you let them steal your joy, then what could be your reason for protesting? What are you protesting in defense of, you know? The, the joy for you. And then when you begin to move outward into the wider chasm of society, like the joy for your community, really that's what these fights are for, for people to be able to pursue joy. You know, the pursuit of happiness is meant to be one of our inalienable rights. Mm-hmm. Along with protesting, which is the First Amendment, Protected right? under the in First Amendment. Forgot. In case people, <laughs> in case people forgot. forgot. It's actually protected and police are actually supposed to protect our right to protest, not try to end the protest per the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. I love all the homework we've given to the good people listening today. If you, I know I gave y'all a lot of assignments, but Cammie, if you could give the listeners an assignment of one thing that they can do, you know, not just... Because like I want to call in women who look like me or women who don't know a lot about the black community to research 
But mm-hmm. for for you, is there an assignment that you would give people? Something that you want them to do? An action that you want them to take after they listen to this conversation? Oh God, I have to pick just one. So you can pick however. Um, no, pick three. I don't care. <laughs> the first. I didn't, thing I just didn't I want to like people... put you on the hot spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Though I appreciate it. The first thing that I want people to do is to continue, keep doing what you're doing. If you haven't started having those tough conversations, start them. Just begin, see where it leads, be open to having the conversations. If no one's had the tough conversations with you, there's nothing wrong with talking about race. We have to talk about it. And I don't see color as not, that's not a thing. We need to see color. We need to see color. We need to appreciate color. We need to love our diversity. We need to love what makes us different. We need to honor those things. And that's how we're going to be able to move forward. The next thing is watch the 13th documentary on Netflix, because I know a lot of people who had doubts once they have seen that it opens up a different part of their brain that maybe they, they didn't even know was there. And it's, it's very insightful. And I feel like there it's undeniable. So watch that. Let me know what you think. And the last thing it's just to keep educating yourself, like continue to keep searching for more information. Don't take anything at face value, like search deeper, find out more. There are so many more stories other than just George Floyd and other than just Breonna Taylor. There are, there are many and make sure that you're looking into the different stories in other communities too. There's, there's so many and you will be disappointed and you will be angry. You will be sad. You will be upset, but that's, a good thing when it comes to fueling the fire for creating change and for seeking justice. So as long as you do those things, you are good in my book. And I am happy to talk about them with you because these, these things need to be discussed. It's, it's far, we've, we've, we've waited far too long to even have this conversation and I'm glad that we're having it now, but there's a lot of people that have a lot of catching up to do and just acknowledge that. And it's okay to not know everything and it's okay to seek out more information. So know that as well. Yes. Mm. I just feel excited. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I'm pumped. So my favorite question, I mean, we've had a lot of favorite moments, but my favorite question to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, as it is the title is, when you think about the idea of a work in progress, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now? Who? I mean, the obvious answer is myself. I'm always going to be a work in progress. Um, I think that even for me, having some of these conversations and acknowledging times where I have been complacent with racism, with things that are said to me that I know are anti-black and I just brush it off and I just kind of, you know, move on to the next thing because I don't want to have to defend my blackness all the time. I don't want to have to, you know, come across as aggressive or whatever all the time. Like sometimes you don't want to have to fight, especially when you're tired of fighting all the time. So I think untapping or tapping into that part of myself And working forward to what I hope will be lessons that I'll be able to teach my future children 
that is what I'm working on. I'm working on, you know, my own self and my own views and how am I handling these things when it comes about and how am I acting different? How am I being the change that I want to see? How am I, you know, contributing to the change? That is what I'm working on, at least right now in this moment. That is what I care about. My boyfriend has been out protesting, like I said, and, you know, I've been on the internet doing my thing because to be honest, I'm too scared to go out and protest, even though I would love to, like, there's been a lot going on. And I I feel that everyone can occupy different spaces in the fight for change. But I, one thing that I've told him, and we've had conversations about is like, when we have kids one day, I want them to know that we were actively fighting for things to look differently for them. And when they see the world, and when they get older, that they won't have to see this shit, like that they will be able to see something different and feel differently and feel more supported and get the things that maybe we didn't get. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers the question, but that is what I'm working on. And I, I, I do want to keep working on that because it's not, this is not something that's going away. Sounds pretty awesome to me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I hope it works. Yeah. And you know, I, I do, I do want to say, and I'm very careful about how to say this because the, Oh, you just, I'm a straight shooter. Spit it out. (laughs) The point obviously of what's happening right now is certainly not for white people to like take over a movement. It's like, we're supposed to go and show up and listen you know, one of the things I loved the most about being at the protest with Black Lives Matter and Movement for Black Lives this past Tuesday, um, and there have been, been actions every day, but that that one in particular, when the riot police showed up, it was the job of, of you know, me and people who look like me to go to the front. Mm-hmm. And we built lines of white people, like lines deep. Yeah. And then we sat down. So they could see over us. They could see what was going on. But it was like, you're not coming in. You're not coming in here. Mm -hmm. And we're not letting you near those people, our people back there. Like, no. And it was cool because where we were sitting, like, people couldn't really hear the speakers. And there was like a whole rally happening behind us. And I was like, we don't need to. Not everything needs to be for us all the time. Yeah. But (laughs) something, you know, like something that I, that I think about when you say like, you know, I wish I could, but I feel scared. Part of me is also like, maybe you should take a break and let us get out and put our bodies on the lines for a while. You know, and a lot of the footage I've been seeing have been our non-black allies and our white allies out there going for it. And what obviously breaks my heart is that they're experiencing the same kind of treatment that we have faced for so long. But at the same time, sometimes it takes maybe the person who doesn't think that this is real, maybe the person who thinks it's a conspiracy, maybe the person who, you know, is still planning on voting for Trump to see people who look like them being trampled and mishandled by the police maybe it takes that to to click something in their brains to say oh shit okay this isn't right you know and it, it i think it gives you even a different level of understanding from being a part of it mhm and i think it's also really important for 
a lot of us who are not black, whether, you know, white or people of color is, is to know that there are so many black people taking to the streets to march for their right to live during mm-hmm. a pandemic that is more likely to kill them than us. Mm-hmm. And that to me is extremely significant and, and not, not because I'm like, oh, wow, but more because I'm like, damn, the, the risks continue to compound intersectionally. And yeah. so for me, it's like a literal honor to say like, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go stand outside. Like you stay home and do what you're doing online because that's filling you. And like, don't worry about it. I have an N95 from my earthquake kit <laughs> that I bought five years ago. So please stay home. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, it's been on my mind and I know a lot of my friends who are black also feel the same way. And even, you know, some of my friends who aren't, but I know for, for many of my black friends were like, I, I just don't know if I should take that risk. I just don't know if I should go out there because at the end of the day, you and I can be protesting together and maybe the cop will approach me and won't approach you. Like, you know, and that, that is, that is where the fear comes in. And I know you can't let fear take over, especially in times like this, but I, I do honestly genuinely feel, especially for people who feel like they're not doing enough and that maybe they are an online activist or maybe they are an artist who's putting out the the posts that you're seeing all over social media for, you know, these Black Lives Matter posts and um we need you know, it all. There's, there's so we need it all. It's it's a combination of everyone that is going to create this change. And everyone and needs we to we're bring all necessary. Gifts. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.